Right, good evening, GOC. We are returning once more to the book of Romans, specifically Romans chapter 7. Last week we saw Paul explain to us what the law is not, namely, we're no longer under the law, no longer bound to it, no longer it's, uh, under its master. And we are under Christ. And yet Christ, in his earthly ministry, told his disciples that he has not come to get rid of the law. He has not come to abolish it. But he's come to fulfill it. So this evening we'll see how, how we, as Christians, saved by the blood of Jesus, understand and relate to the law. So read with me, Romans chapter 7. David read in the ESV, and I will read in the NAS. We'll be reading to verse, from verse 7 to verse 13. This is God's word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The 1970s is marked by various events. It's a turbulent time in United States history. Uh, We are nearing the end of the civil rights movement. Uh, The sexual revolution is in full swing. Uh, Drug use skyrockets because of that as well. And there is an anti-war sentiment in the people of America. If anyone studied U.S. history, you would know that this war is the Vietnam War. And the cause of this anti-war sentiment is through a particular set of documents. Extensive, but it revealed what was really going on in Vietnam. Daniel Ellsberg, a on-the-ground reporter in Vietnam, comes home to the United States, seeing what happens there and being told many things that he cannot report. His conscience pulls at him, and he decides to leak reports dating all the way back to President Truman after the end of World War II and their dealings in Vietnam. 
these are come to be known as the Pentagon Papers. Um, and on June of 1971, the Pentagon Papers was released to the New York Times and then the Washington Post and was printed extensively detailing the exploits of then Secretary of State uh, Robert McNamara. Uh, McNamara. And it was explaining unconstitutional behavior by the succession of, succession of presidents leading up to then President, President Nixon. Uh, the papers exposed what Vietnam truly was, that America was not winning the war. In fact, she was losing. And people didn't know about it until then. When the Pentagon Papers released, the whole nation was in an uproar. It was something that has gone viral, but a couple decades back. And today, this text, we see a similar event going on. That without the Pentagon Papers, the people wouldn't have known the underhandedness of the U.S. government in Vietnam. And without the law, the law of God, we would not have known the underhandedness of sin. Because the law exposes sin, much like how the Pentagon Papers exposed what was really going on in Vietnam. And so this text will see that the law is actually good. It reveals to us the utter sinfulness of sin. And on the other hand, the utter evil that sin takes what is good, namely the law, and twists it for its evil purposes. Now this text, verses 7 through 13, is broken down into three arguments. First, the law discloses your sin. We'll see that in verse 7. Second, the law directs you to life, but sin hijacks the law. We'll see that verses 8 to 11. And lastly, the law demonstrates what is good. The law demonstrates what is good, verses 12 to 13. So we'll see the law discloses your sin. The law directs you to life, but sin hijacks the law. And the law demonstrates what is good. So let's begin in verse 7. What shall we say then? This should be a familiar phrase to the reader of Romans now. Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul walks through what the readers of Romans is thinking. We've been in this train of thought for a while now. Ever since chapter 6, Paul has been answering frequently asked questions of salvation, of justification. And now, what are we to do with this salvation? And so, we'll see that Paul says a hard no if, if the law is sin, but rather, he first says that the law is integral in revealing our true nature. The law is like a sign. If you're on a road, you're getting from point A to point B. Say, for example, on Sunday, you're with your driver. How does your driver know if this is his or her first time driving to Grace Community Church, for example? How does your driver know 
where, which highway to take. Should he take the 405 north or the 405 south? Well, he should take the 405 north. And the same way, if that sign that, if we didn't live in a world of GPSs, if that sign, that blue little sign that says Interstate 405 didn't say north but wasn't there, a first-timer wouldn't know where to go. And likewise, the law tells us, okay, the path that you're on, you're good. You're on the right track. Stay true. And if we were ready to make a random right turn, the law would be like, hey, man, you're actually headed the wrong way. You need to turn back. Life is that way. And so like the Christian, the pilgrim, uh, on the path, the narrow path to the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress, there's only one road that leads to life. And the law acts as signposts, always telling us, this is the road. Not that road. Follow the yellow brick road. Don't follow the other road. Right? So we don't know which way we're going except by through the law. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Furthermore, you, if, for those CS majors out there, it's like the law is using the right computer language for the right app. If your app is in C and you're coding in Python, you can have the most perfect Python code streamlined with comments and footnotes and everything, detailing everything that the code does. And the moment you push run, uh, it's a nightmare for a debugger. And so the law not only is our signpost, but it tells us the standard. This is how you play the rules of the game. The standards in which we live by. And so if you live by your own standard, not the law standard, you're condemned. And that's much like our previous life. We lived whichever way we wanted. The law was there pointing us which way to go, but we just decided to play, play hardball and play by our own rules. Furthermore, in this verse, we see that the law teaches us what our inconsistencies are. So th that's the bugs in our life. Paul uses an illustration here. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul uses the 10th commandment to illustrate this signpost, this direction, this standard by which we must live kind of thinking. And one has to ask, whenever any New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament, why is he using this particular verse? Why the Tenth Commandment out of all things? Why not say the First Commandment? The First Commandment is, you shall not have any other gods before you. Isn't that, shouldn't that be the main thing? Like, we should have God in first place, right? But Paul cuts to the Tenth Commandment. Because the Tenth Commandment, out of all the other commandments, if you read all other nine, the Tenth Commandment is the one that gets to the heart reality behind a person. And so, if you think carefully about the Tenth Commandment, if you think carefully about coveting, coveting can be traced as the root of sin. It's desire for something that is not yours, whether it's personal reputation, money, things, sex, vice versa, that 
you thinking about other people, seeing what they have, being like, why did they have that? I should be the one who has that. Not only that we relate to, uh, the, the 10th commandment relate to other people, but it ultimately relates to God. Why should God have all the glory? We do covet it, God's glory. And so if you think about the 10th commandment, and you think about other nine commandments, you put them next to each other, what is the key difference between the other nine commandments and the 10th commandment? See if you guys a second to think about it. My, I'd say this. The 10th commandment, only I know when I'm coveting. You can't tell if another person is coveting. You can't read their minds. You can't read their hearts. It's only between you and God. That's how it cuts to the heart issue. Do you see that? When was the last time you were rebuked for coveting? Brother, I saw you coveting that donut the other day. Nobody says that. Why? Because you don't, you don't know. How many times have you been asked, how are you doing today? And you respond, oh, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm good. Things are good. But deep down inside, there is an internal war raging against you. Something set you off earlier, and you're in the thick of battle against your sin. That's what's going on here. And Paul says, even the deepest, darkest sin that no one else can know about, the law points out. And so Paul gets personal. And we only know what coveting is through our own self-examination. Self-examination helps us because it allows God, through his law, to get into our own personal space. That any kind of confession for coveting and other sins happen because there's a deep down internal conviction that happens first. And so this commandment teaches us that the law not only cares about external expression, but the internal reality behind your life. And so it's easy. It's easy to hide this stuff. It's easy to hide away our deepest darkest sinful desires the law brings that out and so sin is not so easily brought out but the law does and this leads us into the second point that the law directs us to life directs you to life but sin hijacks it look at verse eight but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead I once was alive apart from the law, but when this commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. When we read, but sin, taking opportunity, or in your Bible, some of your Bibles, seizing opportunity, know this, sin has no original ideas, okay? Sin, what sin does, it just subverts, it twists, 
it manipulates, it hijacks, it steals what is good, flips it around, and uses it for its own purposes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, I'll just read it to you. The sting of death is sin, meaning the consequence of sin, the punishment, that sting is death. The power of, this, of sin is the law. So when you read through the commandment, command, the commandment, law, all similar. Commandment is a singular noun, but it refers to the commandment, which is you shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Everything rests upon that. When you think about sin hijacking the law and loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, you can definitely see they are at polar opposites of each other. Let me help you illustrate this thought. When you hear the names Adolf Hitler, uh, Osama bin Laden, Ted Bundy, there should be some sort of emotion that wells up inside you. Because associated with those names are great evil. There should be some kind of disgust, some kind of hatred. And this is what sin does when it hears God, when it, hear God, when it hears God's word. Because sin and God are complete enemies of one another. When sin hears about God, when sin hears about God's word, when sin hears about what God is doing, sin seethes and writhes and is foaming at the mouth, grinding its teeth because it hates God so much. It rebels against God. Vice versa, when God hears about sin, God is just. It cannot, he cannot abide with sin. He has to punish sin. And so, much like when we hear about great evil, when sin hears about God, there's a negative reaction that's involved. Right? And so what happens when you have something that is completely, utterly against God receive something from God, namely its law? What happens when God commands sin to do something? What does sin do? You shall not covet. Sin will hear it and be like, all right, I'm going to covet until the day I die. That's what I'm going to do with all my strength. Because I sin, hate you, God, so much, I'm going to covet and do exactly the opposite of what you say until I can't do it no more. And so this is what Paul is saying, that Unless there's a contact, an interaction between these two polar opposites, this sin lies dormant. I once, oh, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law, verse 9, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So picture this. Picture you, college, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, a UCLA student, you, you're in a room, and there's one door in it, and there's only one other thing in that room with you, and it's a sleeping monster. It's sleeping, and you're with it, 
And so I can imagine if I'm in a room with a monster sleeping there and there's only one door and, oh, what do you know? It's locked. I'd just be like, okay, we're just going to chill here and hope that this thing does not come alive because I know the moment that it comes alive, I'm dead. Now the law comes. The law opens the door and he has a megaphone in his hand. And he looks at you and the law says, slay that beast with his mega horn. And you're like, bro, <laughs> I know what you're saying is helpful and is right and it's true, but you just woke the monster up and now I have to deal with it. Do you see how the law comes in like that? He tells us what it's good, what we should be doing, but we're so helpless that sin easily overtakes us and consumes us. Do you know what this is like? Living like that is like living like salvation through your own good deeds. Because every time you're going to try something to slay that monster, your cut will only go skin deep. You try hard. Try and try and slay and slay as hard as you want, as much as you want. But it's futile. Furthermore, when sin wakes up, sin will do what the law tells, him, tells you not to do. Sin wakes up and be like, you want to kill me? Ha! Huh, joke's on you. I'm killing you now. And so that's our relationship with the law, sin, and God. Okay, this only makes sense in one in one condition, and this is the truth, that you and I, people, humans, humans and sin are tied inextricably. There's no difference. This argument from Paul only makes sense when I'm the sinner. We're not some innocent bystander here. Rather, we're the active participant. We don't, we don't just sit idly by and there's this nebulous sin kind of floating around and all of a sudden, whoop, we get swallowed up. It wasn't me. It was sin. No, you and I are sinners by nature. This whole time when we're in Romans, when you, when you read the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is building a case for that. Listen to this, Romans 1.18. Against all godliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 2.9. Tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, Jew, the Jew first and then to the Greek. And of course, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just have a natural hatred for God's rules and God's law. God's law stands no different from any other society. We are just bent on sinning. That is our nature. And so, left without ourselves, we are without hope. And this is why we need a mediator. Because the law is coming in and pointing us to the right direction. And we look at it and we're like, ha, huh, 
who turn around and go the other way where death and destruction is. We need someone to flip us around, slap us in the face, and say, you need to go that way because there you don't want to go there. We need an outside mediator. This is where Christ comes in. If you've forgotten how great and how sweet Christ is, think about how sinful you are by nature. By nature. Jesus was all about the law. Uh, Jesus wrote the law. And Jesus taught us what it means to live by the law. When you read Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that he has not come to abolish the law or to get rid of it. The law is not sin, but he's come to fulfill it. He's come to teach us that even hating our brother equates murder. That's how we're supposed to read the law and understand it. That's how a kingdom citizen functions. And so for some of you, you might be sitting there and thinking, okay, this is well, all well and good. I'm, I'm all right. I don't, I don't commit murder. I don't commit adultery. And sure, yeah, I might, I might get impatient with my roommates sometimes. But the question is, by nature, by your natural disposition, how long will you silently sit there and rebel against God? That when the law of God is presented against you, how, how, how long will you react and, and be, be disgusted by, oh, I have to follow rules now? No way. I'm going to live life how I'm going to live life. And come to Jesus today. Come to him because he has fulfilled that law. He has brought righteousness upon his shoulders and he places that righteousness upon ours. He has given us a heart so that when we do read the signpost, we think, okay, I do want to go there. I do want to go there. And, and this moves us and builds us to Paul's main point that the law of God is so good. The psalmist in Psalm 119 raves about the law. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So lastly, the law demonstrates to us what is good. The law demonstrates to us what is good. What is the law? Well, Paul tells us. So then, verse 12, the law is holy. Holy meaning set apart, unique, different, pure. God is holy. Christ is holy. His law is holy. The commandment, all of the law summed up into one single commandment, that we should be wholly devoted to God, love him with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and all our strength. It's holy, and it's righteous, and it's good. So in other words, the law is set apart. It's different. It's unique. It's pure. The law is just, is right, is perfect, and the law is excellent. It's beneficial for us. It's helpful to us. It's profitable for our lives and our, for our souls. The law is not sin. It's the exact opposite. And so in the conclusion of this section, Paul reiterates that it isn't the law, but our sin nature at work. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin, reveal sin for what it is, by affecting my death. 
that sin kills you, that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Every time you read God's law, every time you read a imperative, a commandment from the word of God, know that this is for your good. This is for your help. That when you obey it and you seek to obey it, who do you more like become? You become more like Jesus. Because Jesus was about his word. Because his word pointed and spoke of him. The question is, now what? Because if the law never existed, we would have never realize that we needed a savior even before your conversion the law continues to drive you to the cross and so now what if you have come to christ today why does this matter what do you do with this law how do you apply it you find any old testament new testament application of any text in the person of Jesus Christ. Obey the law. Obey it. Obey it because Christ has obeyed first and he's gone before us and he is now our great high priest interceding for us, helping us, pleading on our behalf that we might obey better. He knew that the law was righteous, holy, and good. And so, for example, when you read the Ten Commandments, use Christ as your model for obedience. We have ten points of application tonight. The first, that Christ had no other gods before him. He was perfectly devoted to his Father. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and held two tablets on his hand, detailing what it means to be the follow, a follower of God. God told the people to listen to, to that law. Similarly, when Jesus came down the Mount of Transfiguration, God said similar words. He told his disciples to listen to him. Listen to Christ. And so therefore, we then can have no other gods before us because we have Christ before us. Approach God through Christ. Know that he mediates for you day and night. That is his job, and he does it joyfully. Second, Christ did not bow down to any idol or carved image because he knew that any image, any earthly image, does not perfectly capture the glory of God except for himself, because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, he has preeminence in all things. And so, it isn't the physical image of Christ that we worship, because Isaiah 53, too, tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him, but it is his person, it is his work, it is his character that we look to. We, too, have no other images or worship, any carved things, because we too are made in the image of God. And so we worship God for who he is and how he's made us. We worship 
in the purity of our heart, not in externals, but in the tried and true word that we've been taught, the gospel. Third, Christ did not take the Lord's name in vain. And he, but he prayed, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because he knew that a name carries a person's character within it. Why do we hate and, and are taken aback when we hear Adolf Hitler? Because there are things and deeds and character tied behind that name. And so when we hear Jesus Christ, we bring relief to our souls. Because in Christ there is power. That those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we take the name of God seriously. We take it so seriously that we call ourselves little Christs. Christian. When you call yourself a Christian to your friends, your non, non, uh, non-believing friends on campus, and you say, I'm a Christian, what are you doing there? You're saying that I follow Jesus with all my heart. I bear his title. I'm a follower of him. I believe in what he has done. And so live out the name of Christ. Fourthly, Christ remembered the Sabbath. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. And he taught that it wasn't about the physical resting, that particular day that mattered, but it was he was pointing to an eternal rest that he was going to provide. And so we too rest in Christ. It's so easy to go, go, to, to be busy, to fill up our calendars. Sometimes we won't stop until God commands us to. We think that by, by doing so much for God, by always stressing and straining ourselves, God will be pleased. When oftentimes God just says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For you who are burdened, midterms are coming down hard. You just take a day to just disconnect, to sit with the Lord of the Sabbath, and to rest in him, and think upon eternal rest that is coming. We worship that rest. Fifth, Christ honored his father and mother. He never disobeyed, and he always submitted himself to them. So much so that it was said that Mary treasured all these things in her heart because Jesus obeyed her. Because he knew that submission to his earthly parents was just a picture, a mirror of submission to his heavenly father. And so we too live in honor our fathers and mothers. Do you show gratitude to them? Do you obey them when they ask you to? Do you love them? Do you make the simple connection just by picking up your phone and calling them once in a while? Sixth, Christ never committed murder, but he was murdered for murderers. Christ, Jesus valued the image of God in people. Yes, he taught that unrighteous anger is equivalent to murder in the heart. 
but more so, he took that full anger that was all around him. Took it full on. He was righteously angry for the sin of others and so righteously angry that he knew what had to be done. And he said, God, the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he drank the cup of wrath. And so we too can value life. Value life for as Christ did. Uh, Yes, negatively in our thoughts, thinking good, just, pure things of others, but positively in our reconciliation with one another when we have been wronged, that we'd seek out reconciliation, even if we had nothing to do with the other person. We had nothing to do with that situation. Seventh, Christ never lusted after another man's bride, but he gave up himself for his own bride, the church. He teaches us by his way of life that singleness and contentment is more than possible. And yet, his father prepared him a heavenly bride waiting for him when he returns to take his bride home. So likewise, we can confront our lust. That we can hold Christ as our standard of beauty our standard of holiness, and we trust entrust all our desires to him. We lay down all of our failures, past failures before his feet, and future failures because we know that he receives us, that he's working in us, washing his bride with his word at this very moment. Eighth, Christ never stole anything. He valued everything in its own place, and he taught us that treasures on earth Moth and rust will destroy. But we are to store ourselves up treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth nor thief can come in, destroy, and steal. Ninthly, Christ never bore a false witness against his neighbor. He spoke truth. Everything that was uttered from his mouth was truth. Everything was salt, was edifying for the occasion, built some another person up. And so we too seek and know that we can say encouraging, edifying, life-giving words to people. We watch our, our lips. We watch our gossip. We watch our slander. Even if it's, ha-ha, I was just kidding. And lastly, Christ didn't covet. He was pure on the outside, and he was pure on the inside. He was the complete man. He was a dependent man for sure. He depended upon his father. Uh, But he knew that his father clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air much like he does with everything else. And so we entrust, entrust our lives to Christ for all things. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He said that I am the bread of life. Those who eat from me shall no longer hunger, and those who drink from me shall no longer thirst. And so we are satisfied in the riches of Christ. Who is sufficient for these things? Because Christ is more than sufficient. Do you know your position in Christ? Do you know that after the cross, he was buried in the grave 
and from the grave that he rose, and he went before us. He has gone before you, and now we can obey. We obey as the fruit of our salvation. So live as if you're his. Live in full, adjo- in full joy and full obedience with full assurance because he has gone before you. He has fulfilled the law. He has taught us that the law is holy, righteous, and good. And he's taught us that, yes, we are sinners and we still wrestle with our sin, but he has nailed it upon the cross. So we bear it no more. So live, obey his law. Know that when we do obey, that it is yet not I, but Christ in me who helps you. Next time we're in Romans, uh, Paul will address one more question. Okay, so the law is good. The law is good for me, and I should obey it. But why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? I'm still wrestling with the same sins I have been before. We'll look at that the next time we're in Romans. But for now, know that Christ, your great high priest, has gone before you into the heavens and is doing a work inside you now. A dual work, that is for sure, that we work, our, we work at our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is him who is working in us as well. GOC, step out in faith. Step out and obey.